Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Howard Hendricks, also known as The Prof. Hendricks was a keynote speaker for Promise Keepers, authored 16 books, and ministered in over 80 countries. Today, Howard Hendricks presents a sermon on The Problem of Pain. The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. Thank you and good evening. I spend a lot of my time in hobbies and particularly in collecting. But one of the things that I enjoy collecting the most are church bulletin bloopers. <laughs> and I picked up a few that are classic. Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. Thursday night, potluck supper, prayer, and medication to follow. <laughs> this is a classic. For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. <laughs> this afternoon, there will be a meeting in the south and north ends of the church. Children will be baptized at both ends. But the one that really grabs me is this. At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> well, I thought they would bless you. What a delight, a privilege, and an honor it is to return to the ministry of the Word here at Moody Bible Institute. I thank God upon every remembrance of this institution and its continued impact. I've had the privilege now of ministering in 76 countries around the world, and I have yet to minister in a country where the impact of Moody Bible Institute is not felt. Some of the great work that is being done around the world and certainly across our United States is being done by graduates of this institution. And it's been my pleasure to have many of the, the graduates of this school as students of mine at the seminary, and that's always a choice privilege. If you have a Bible or a New Testament, May I invite you to turn in the Word which is alive to the book of James. I want to focus your attention on several verses in chapter 1 of this epistle. James was an eminently practical Christian who could not conceive of a merely theoretic faith. For him, truth must become tangent to life. My creed must be translated into my conduct. My doctrine must 
be transfused by my duty. In a word, James was interested in a belief that behaves. And I think he would have had a great deal of sympathy with the uneducated pastor who was out calling one day, particularly on one of his delinquent deacons who'd been rather remiss in his responsibilities at the church. And during the course of the conversation when the pastor was pressing his failure to be responsible, the man kept saying, but, but, but Pastor, you, you, you've got to excuse me. He said, I'm sick. I, I've got a bad heart. Well, the pastor had heard this one too many times. And finally, he turned to the brother and he said, man, there ain't nothing wrong with your heart. The trouble with you is there's something wrong with your liver because you ain't living right. You see, James was writing to a group of people who prided themselves in their orthodoxy, but who were short of orthopraxy. Have you read this epistle recently? If you have, I'm sure you've gained the impression James has been reading your mail. He leans over you like a dentist and says reassuringly, this may hurt a little. So if during the course of the message you are wont to shout, ouch, it is with divine design. But the thing that has intrigued me most is the subject that James elects to use with which to launch his epistle, namely the problem of pain. That question which has been gnawing at the growing edges of human mentality from time immemorial. Why do the righteous suffer? Now there is a very crucial historical key with which to unlock the book in verse 1 of chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. I want you to mark it well. James is writing to a group of displaced persons. In fact, we have some additional historical insight back in the book of Acts, chapter 8. The chapter opens with public enemy number one to the church, Saul, breathing out threatenings and slaughter, guilty of martyring Stephen. And the text says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church of Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. Verse 4, those who had been scattered went everywhere griping and complaining and saying, my, isn't this tragic that God allowed this to happen to us? You'll notice that in your text. That's the reversed standard version. Some years ago, I was ministering in the great country of India, we were conducting a series of pastors' conferences. And to one of our conferences came three pastors who had just been released from prison for preaching the gospel in their state, a communist-controlled state where at that time it was against the law to preach the gospel. I said, what was it like 
in your state? He said, sir, it's just like the book of the Acts. Oh, I said, really? Tell me about it. Well, they said, the more they persecute us, the more we flourish. We got two services, three services, four services. We're now up to five services every Sunday to accommodate the people who want to come. Well, the elders got together and said, Pastor, we got a problem. We've discovered some people coming to more than one service. So they got up next Sunday and said, look, from now on, it's one service only. If we see you in a second service, we're going to ask you to leave because you're taking somebody's seat who wants the ministry of the Word. Well, that worked for a while. And then the elders came up with a better plan. So they got up one Sunday and said, look, from now on, if you come this Sunday, you stay home next Sunday. It's one Sunday on, one Sunday off. Just like it is in Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> but for an altogether different reason. And you know, you emerge from an experience like that asking, you know, how can we launch a persecution? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, James is not answering the questions nobody's asking. This was the problem as a scattered, persecuted people that was kicking the slats out of their light. And for a few moments tonight, I'd like to unpack this passage of Scripture for you. If you have a pencil or a pen, I would encourage you to write just a few words in the margin of your Bible, because I assure you, you will have many occasions when you can return to this passage. Beside verses 2 through 4, I want you to write the little word purpose. And will you mark how James begins it? Count it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of every kind. So what a strange reaction. Not strange, supernatural. Peter says, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. That's the natural reaction. James is proposing a supernatural option. And will you note he says, when or whenever you face various trials. Oh, but there's somebody out there who says, you know, I don't, I don't have any problems. I don't have any trials. Be patient. <laughs> They're on their way. It was our Lord who said, in the world you shall have tribulation. That's a promise made by the same person who said, if I go away, I will come again and receive you to myself. Paul said, it is given unto you not only to believe, but also to suffer. I'm sure you thank God for the gift of belief. When's the last time you thanked him for the gift of suffering? It's sourced in the same loving hand. 
Job said, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Every time you go to a campfire and watch those sparks inevitably moving toward the sky, you've got a visual aid. The pain is the tissue of human life. Whenever you fall into a variety of trials, some of them physical, some of them spiritual, some of them social, some of them emotional, some of them psychological, some of them familial, a variety of trials and temptations and problems. But they will come. Now, why would you respond by that? Well, James says, because you know, and by the way, he wants you to know it by experience, that the testing of your faith develops patience, perseverance, endurance. It's a fascinating word. It's a military term which means to hold up courageously under fire. Is there anybody in this auditorium, anybody listening to my voice, who has a thoroughly adequate supply of patience under every circumstance? Anybody listening to me who does not want patience? Oh, we all want the product. But we don't want the process. And James says you cannot get this product of endurance, the ability to hang tough in the midst of your testing without this process. And then he says perseverance or endurance must finish its work. In other words, don't bail out. Don't perform an abortion upon God's purpose in your life. Don't throw in the towel. But let it bring its full completion. And I love the way he expresses it in the text. That you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James picks up two very expressive terms which are used of the process of fruit bearing. Anyone who's been around fruit trees understands that a piece of fruit goes through two basic stages in its development. First of all, it has all of the component parts. It's an orange, it's an apple, it's a grapefruit, a pear. It will never be more of an orange, a grapefruit, a pear, an apple than it is right now. But no one wants to sink his teeth into that. Because there is a second stage in the development in which the pear, the apple, the piece of fruit becomes sweet. It becomes ripened so that you can hardly wait to sink your teeth into it. Have you ever discovered how many Christians are like a buzzsaw? You know, you back up to it. They are delighted to give you a portion of their mind that they can very seldom afford to lose. That's why I love that statement. In the book of Peter, when he says, but continue to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, it's perfect balance. Because when Jesus Christ visited our planet, he pitched his tent among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the Father, full of grace and truth. Not just the component parts, so that you can whip someone in a theological duel, but the sweetness, the fragrance, the tastefulness that comes as a result of Christ at work. Jesus is not in the process of making smarter sinners. He's in the process of making people just like himself. And may I remind you, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus, although he was a son, yet learned he obedience, huh? Through the things that he suffered. A.W. Tozer, who pastored in the city for many years, said it's doubtful that God can use any man greatly until he has been hurt deeply. Nothing comes into my life or into your life but what it comes across the screen of his will. And he wants what is best for you, and he knows what is best for you, and he will do exactly what is best for you. Beginning at verse 5 and going through verse 8, I want you to write the little word place. James underscores the place of wisdom in testing. And he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and we are compelled to translate it, and you will, what kind of wisdom? Why, the wisdom to respond to your testing by counting it all a source of joy, knowing that God has a perfect design, and what the product will eventually be. He should ask God. Resources are available upon request. And who gives generously to all without finding fault. I love that. Do you ever ask somebody to do something for you and they say, well, all right. And you have the strongest urge to say, really, if it's that painful, forget it. <laughs> James wants you to understand, look, you never come to God and hear him say, what, are you here again? Man, you were just here five minutes ago. Gabriel, go get the club. <laughs> you are always welcome in his presence. And what's the promise? Don't miss it. This tells me he's going to give it to you. The very thing you need, the very strength and enablement, he will supply an adequate form for you to face your test. But, here's the condition. When he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown, tossed by the wind, Anyone who lives in Chicago and has watched the waves beat against the shore in a Lake Michigan storm has the vividness of the picture. 
He's like a wave of the sea blown, tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The World Series is on. It's tied up three games apiece. We're going into the seventh and determinative game. It's the last half of the ninth inning. The score is three to three. There are two outs. And there's a full count on the batter at the plate. And in surprise, for the third strike, or ball, he lays down a bunt toward the third baseman who rushes in, scoops it up, and tosses it to the catcher as the man slides underneath. And every eye in the stadium is on a little man with a black hat. We're looking for a sign. He said, out! Save! And he makes a sign. He takes his hat off and he scratches his head. And as we come a little closer, he says, you know, this is a rough one. <laughs> I mean, in some ways it would appear that he was out. But the more I think of it, the more I think he might be safe. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, kill the ump would be more than a slogan. James picks up this vivid picture and says, look. You're going to have to make up your mind whether God is an adequate person to trust. The amazing thing, men and women, is that in this entire passage, there is not one shred of evidence that you will know, you will understand what that purpose is. Because the ultimate question in testing is not why. Lord, did you hap let this happen to me? But what, Lord, do you want to teach me? It's the person behind the promise. A number of years ago, I was ministering with Campus Crusade for Christ. There were several thousand college kids in an amphitheater. And at the end of one of the sessions, a group representing a little committee of kids came up and said, Dr. Hendricks, would you do us a favor? I said, if I can. They said, would you give us another address on the practical value of Christianity in the trials of life? Well, I said, Yes, I, I'd be happy to do that. So I went up to my room and I spent some time in the Word and on my knees and I came up with a message. And as I was going toward the amphitheater, one of the young ladies from the office came to me and said, Dr. Hendricks, there's an urgent telephone call for you. It's from your wife. And I think you better take it. So when I got on the phone, my lovely wife said, Sweetheart, I hate to tell you this, but Beverly, that's our second daughter, has just gone through a plate glass window in an automobile accident. And right now, 
It's a little hairy as to what the outcome will be. Men and women somewhere, between putting down that telephone and coming out on that platform before a group of college kids, I had to make a serious decision. Is God worthy of my trust? You see, men and women, had God said to me, Hendricks, I'm going to put your daughter through a plate glass windshield. What do you think of that? I would have said, Lord, let's make it an elective. But he never asked me. Oh, I mean, it's wonderful to tell you how God miraculously saved my daughter's life. But you see, the deeper question is, had he not, would I be able to give you as strong a testimony tonight of the grace and goodness of God? I can't explain it. I try with my seminary students, but never succeed. They say, well, Prof, uh, you know, what do you think? (laughs) And I give them my best shot. And they say, well, is that the best you can do? That's the best I can do. Well, how come you're teaching in a seminary? I don't know. I guess that's why they don't pay me more. (laughs) And while you're laughing, you better allow the Spirit to cram it right down the center of your throat. See, what kind of a God do you have? And even when I can't explain it all, I understand there's a person who knows what's best for me, who will do what is best for me. And that's where I have to put my confidence. Now, don't miss verses 9 through 11. And by the way, these are verses that confuse a lot of people. Let me see if I can help you. Beside verses 9 through 11, I want you to write the little word perspective. Because if you're going to count it all joy, no matter what the testing is that you are experiencing right now or will in the future, you're going to have to make up your mind whether you have an adequate God who has an explanation when you don't. And you will need the perspective that James spells out in these verses. Let me just read the verses and then come back. Listen carefully. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Because he will pass away like a wild flower. 
The sun rises with scorching heat, withers the plant, its blossoms fall, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about in his business. You see, James gives us two case studies. One man is rich. The other man is poor. They are both believers in the body of Christ who have experienced the ravages of the persecution. And the low man, the poor man, is wont to cry out, Lord, I have nothing. And James says, you're wrong. You have everything in Jesus Christ and no amount of affluence will in any way tamper or improve your exalted position in Christ. But there's a rich man and he says, God has blessed me. But now under the ravages of the persecution, I've lost everything. James says, you're wrong. You haven't lost anything except that which is in the process of passing away. And men and women, the Apostle James is teaching us a basic principle you will find throughout the Word of God. And that is the distinction between that which is passing, perishing, and that which is permanent. Because you see, my friends, if you cannot distinguish between that which is permanent and that which is perishable, then suffering will never make sense to you. While ministering in India on a previous occasion that I cited a moment ago, I had the privilege of a lifetime. I was invited to speak in a leprosarium. As you may know, through the advances of medical science, we've come so far. But these were people who were never touched by that. And so I showed up in this little chapel on a Sunday afternoon for a Vesper service. And throughout the congregation were lepers in various stages of leprosy. Some had no fingers or hands or legs or other portions of their body. And so before I got up to speak, the man who was conducting the service said, I, I wonder if some of you would like to share your testimony. And one after another, these lepers got up and told about the reality of Christ in their life. And then the most beautiful woman I have ever seen in my life, and I'm obviously not referring to the superficial standards of Hollywood, got up, held both arms up, all ten fingers were gone, and said, thank God I'm a leper. Because through my leprosy, I came to know Jesus Christ. And I'd rather be a leper and know Him than to be completely whole and a stranger to His grace.
And I said, thank you, Lord. I finally found someone who can distinguish between the permanent and the perishable. Can you? Let's suppose while you're enjoying the service, your home is completely destroyed by fire. No one is injured. No one is burned. But everything you own is gone. How much would you have lost? Depends. See, if you were, if you were enamored of that collection of junk you got under one mortgage, you lost it all. But if you know Christ as your Savior, and can distinguish between the permanent and the perishable, you have not lost a thing except that which is in the process of passing away. Last year I was invited to speak at Moody Founders Week, and I looked forward so much. First part of January... 1996, a very close doctor friend of mine examined a little lesion I had here on the right side of my temple and said, Howie, we better, we better examine it more closely. So they biopsied it and he said, you've got cancer. Now in my judgment, he said, I think it's about the size of a quarter. So I want to send you to a specialist friend of mine, and uh, probably will only be an hour in surgery, and you can go on your way. So I showed up at the doctor's office with my wife for what I thought was a one-hour simple procedure. Ten and a half hours later, after four separate invasions, the doctor said, Sir, you're going to have to come back again because we don't have it all. So I went back for a second day for eight and a half more hours. And by the time he got through, the whole side of my face was gone. He said, you're going to have to get it repaired, but you will also need some additional surgery to guarantee that the cancer has not spread. I can remember, as you can expect, like an hour ago, my sweet wife and I sitting in an operating room with one of the most brilliant surgeons in the southwestern United States, and he said, Howie, it's going to take about seven and a half hours of surgery to put you back together again. But I want to be honest with you. There is a possibility that this will affect your hearing, and you will no longer hear, at least in the right ear. And there's a possibility this may affect your eye, and that you will no longer see, at least with both eyes. 
and intellectual medical honesty compels me to tell you it may also have affected your brain so that you will not think the way you did. And that lovely woman and I sat in that hospital room, and I'm sure many of you have gone down this road, maybe with people you love, so you can identify with it. I so deeply appreciated the honesty of that surgeon. You see, he loved me, and he told it like it was. Never covered it up. Gave me the most serious outcome and said, but we'll together trust God. And when he left, you know, here you are with your wife of 50 years sitting across from you. You do some pretty serious thinking. And I will never forget saying, sweetheart, you and I have spent all of our life teaching people in the body of Christ across America and around the world the importance of trusting God. And now we got a laboratory in which to see if it really works. And my dear wife looked me straight in the eye and said, Howie, this is more than theology. This is reality. You have taught me the greatest truth concerning the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. God is in charge. There are no accidents with Him. Nothing slips up on His blind side. And she said, either God is what He claims to be, or He's not. And you and I have to make up our mind where we're going to place our trust. Oh, again, it's wonderful to tell you what God has accomplished in my life. It neither affected my seeing or my hearing or my mind. But you see, that's not the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is, I want you to count it all joy. Because you know that the trying of your patience, your endurance, is going to produce Christ-likeness. And if you lack wisdom to face it that way, and you will, then ask God. And He'll give it without a string attached. But you're going to have to make up your mind. You cannot doubt. You cannot be double-minded. You're going to have to determine, is he or isn't he? And above all, you better build into your day-by-day theology the realization there is an infinite difference between the permanent and the perishable. And those of us who have come to faith have believed in a God who does not lie. And what he promises, he performs.
Let's pray. Father, what a privilege tonight to gather as the people of God and sing our praises and worship you. Hear such incredible music presented to your glory. Sing our songs, listen to your word, but also leave tonight knowing that all that we have is ultimately invested in eternity. It's permanent. It will never fade away. All because we know Jesus Christ. Lord, make us good stewards of your grace. In whatever time you allow us to live on this earth, we pray that we may use it to the greater glory of our God. And we thank you for what you are going to do because we come believingly through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.